welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Yay! Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone tonight. And your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for everyone, everywhere, all over the world. If not, fill them up and understand, y'all, that we don't have to condone the actions of darkness and the ill intent of any group or individual at all. But neither should we let their actions of darkness impede the flow of love, which emanates from our mighty I Am Presence. Because if we do, we relinquish to the darkness our divine power. And that should never be done. Therefore, no matter our battles in this world, let us always remember and acknowledge first the power of love that saves our souls. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light. And y'all be loved. The plan of salvation. Sorrow filled heaven, as it was realized that man was lost, and the world that God created was to be filled with mortals doomed to misery, sickness and death, and there was no way of escape for the offender. The whole family of Adam must die. I saw the lovely Jesus and beheld an expression of sympathy and sorrow upon his countenance. Soon I saw him approach the exceeding bright light which enshrouded the Father. Said my accompanying angel, he is in close converse with his Father. The anxiety of the angel seemed to be intense while Jesus was communing with his Father. Three times he was shut in by the glorious light about the Father, and the third time he came from the Father, his person could be seen. His countenance was calm, free from all perplexity and trouble, and shone with benevolence and loveliness, such as words cannot express. He then made known to the angelic host that a way of escape had been made for lost man. He told them that he had been pleading with his father, and had offered to give his life a ransom, and take the sentence of death upon himself, that through him man might find pardon. That through the merits of his blood, and obedience to the law of God, they could have the favor of God, and be brought into the beautiful garden, and eat of the fruit of the tree of life. At first the angels could not rejoice, for their commander concealed nothing from them, but opened before them the plan of salvation. Jesus told them that he would stand between the wrath of his father and guilty man, that he would bear iniquity and scorn, and but few would receive him as the Son of God. Nearly all would hate and reject him. He would leave all his glory in heaven, appear upon earth as a man, humble himself as a man, become acquainted by his own experience with the various temptations with which man would be beset, that he might know how to succor those who should be tempted, and that finally, after his mission as a teacher should be accomplished, he would be delivered into the hands of men and endure almost every cruelty and suffering that Satan and his angels could inspire wicked men to inflict, that he should die the cruelest of deaths, hung up between the heavens and the earth as a guilty sinner, that he should suffer dreadful hours of agony, which even angels could not look upon, but would veil their faces from the sight. Not merely agony of body would he suffer, but mental agony, 
that with which bodily suffering could in no wise be compared. The weight of the sins of the whole world would be upon him. He told them he would die and rise again the third day and should ascend to his father to intercede for wayward, guilty man. The angels prostrated themselves before him. They offered their lives. Jesus said to them that he should by his death save many, that the life of an angel could not pay the debt. His life alone could be accepted of his father as a ransom for man. Jesus also told them that they should have a part to act, to be with him, and at different times strengthen him. That he should take man's fallen nature, and his strength would not be even equal with theirs. And they should be witnesses of his humiliation and great sufferings. And as they should witness his sufferings, and the hate of men towards him, they would be stirred with the deepest emotions, and through their love for him, would wish to rescue and deliver him from his murderers, but that they must not interfere to prevent anything they should behold, and that they should act a part in his resurrection, that the plan of salvation was devised, and his father had accepted the plan. With a holy sadness, Jesus comforted and cheered the angels, and informed them that hereafter those whom he should redeem would be with him, and ever dwell with him, and that by his death he should ransom many and destroy him who had the power of death. And his father would give him the kingdom, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven, and he should possess it forever and ever. Satan and sinners should be destroyed, never more to disturb heaven, or the purified, new earth. Jesus bid the heavenly host be reconciled to the plan that his father accepted and rejoiced that fallen man could be exalted again through his death, to obtain favor with God and enjoy heaven. Then joy, inexpressible joy, filled heaven. And the heavenly host sung a song of praise and adoration. They touched their harps and sung a note higher than they had done before, for the great mercy and condescension of God in yielding up his dearly beloved to die for a race of rebels. Praise and adoration were poured forth for the self-denial and sacrifice of Jesus, that he would consent to leave the bosom of his Father and choose a life of suffering and anguish, and die an ignominious death to give life to others. Said the angel, Think ye that the Father yielded up his dearly beloved Son without a struggle? No, no. It was even a struggle with the God of heaven, whether to let guilty man perish, or to give his beloved son to die for them. Angels were so interested for man's salvation that there could be found among them those who would yield their glory, and give their life for perishing man. But, said my accompanying angel, that would avail nothing. The transgression was so great that an angel's life would not pay the debt. Nothing but the death and the intercessions of his son would pay the debt, and save lost man from hopeless sorrow and misery. But the work of the angels was assigned them, to ascend and descend with strengthening balm from glory to soothe the Son of God in his sufferings, and administer unto him. Also, their work would be to guard and keep the subjects of grace from the evil angels, and the darkness constantly thrown around them by Satan. I saw that it was impossible for God to alter or change his law, to save lost, perishing man, therefore he suffered his beloved son to die for man's transgression. Satan again rejoiced with his angels that he could, by causing man's fall, pulled down the Son of God from his exalted position. He told his angels that when Jesus should take fallen man's nature, he could overpower him and hinder the accomplishment of the plan of salvation. I was then shown Satan as he was, a happy, exalted angel. Then I was shown him as he now is. He still bears a kingly form. His features are still noble, for he is an angel fallen. But the expression of his countenance is full of anxiety, care, unhappiness, malice, hate, mischief, deceit, and every evil. That brow which was once so noble, I particularly noticed. His forehead commenced from his eyes to recede backward. 
I saw that he had demeaned himself so long, that every good quality was debased, and every evil trait was developed. His eyes were cunning, sly, and showed great penetration. His frame was large, but the flesh hung loosely about his hands and face. As I beheld him, his chin was resting upon his left hand. He appeared to be in deep thought. A smile was upon his countenance, which made me tremble, it was so full of evil, and satanic slyness. This smile is the one he wears just before he makes sure of his victim, and as he fastens the victim in his snare, this smile grows horrible. See Isaiah, Chapter 53 The Great Controversy, by Ellen G. White, 1858 Volume 2, Chapter 1 If science has unintentionally helped the progress of the occult phenomena, the latter have reciprocally aided science herself. Until the days when newly reincarnated philosophy boldly claimed its place in the world, there had been but few scholars who had undertaken the difficult task of studying comparative theology. This science occupies a domain heretofore penetrated by few explorers, the necessity which it involved of being well acquainted with the dead languages, necessarily limited the number of students, besides, there was less popular need for it so long as people could not replace the Christian orthodoxy by something more tangible. It is one of the most undeniable facts of psychology, that the average man can as little exist out of a religious element of some kind, as a fish out of the water. The voice of truth, a voice stronger than the voice of the mightiest thunder, speaks to the inner man in the 19th century of the Christian era, as it spoke in the corresponding century BC. It is a useless and unprofitable task to offer to humanity the choice between a future life and annihilation. The only chance that remains for those friends of human progress who seek to establish for the good of mankind a faith, henceforth stripped entirely of superstition and dogmatic fetters, is to address them in the words of Joshua, Choose ye this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. The science of religion, wrote Max Muller in 1860, is only just beginning, during the last 50 years the authentic documents of the most important religions in the world have been recovered in a most unexpected and almost miraculous manner. We have now before us the canonical books of Buddhism, the Zendavesta of Zoroaster is no longer a sealed book, and the hymns of the Rigveda have revealed a state of religious anterior to the first beginnings of that mythology, which in Homer and Hesiod, stands before us as a moldering ruin. In their insatiable desire to extend the dominion of blind faith, the early architects of Christian theology had been to conceal, as much as it was possible, the true sources of the same. To this end, they are said to have burned or otherwise destroyed all the original manuscripts on the Kabbalah, magic, and occult sciences upon which they could lay their hands. They ignorantly supposed that the most dangerous writings of this class had perished with the last Gnostic, but someday they may discover their mistake. Other authentic and important documents will perhaps reappear in a most unexpected and almost miraculous manner. H. P. Blavatsky There are strange traditions current in various parts of the East, on Mount Athos and in the desert of Nitria, for instance, among certain monks, and with learned rabbis in Palestine, who pass their lives in commenting upon the Talmud. They say that not all the rolls and manuscripts reported in history to have been burned by Caesar, by the Christian mob, in 389, and by the Arab general Amru, 
perished as it is commonly believed, and the story they tell is the following. At the time of the contest for the throne, in 51 BC, between Cleopatra and her brother Dionysius Ptolemy, in the Bruchian, which contained over 700,000 rolls, all bound in wood and fireproof parchment, was undergoing repairs, and a great portion of the original manuscripts, considered among the most precious, and which were not duplicated, were stored away in the house of one of the librarians. As the fire which consumed the rest was but the result of accident, no precautions had been taken at the time. But they add, that several hours had passed between the burning of the fleet, set on fire by Caesar's order and the moment when the first buildings situated near the harbor caught fire in their turn, and that all librarians, aided by several hundred slaves attached to the museum, succeeded in saving the most precious of the rolls. So perfect and solid was the fabric of the parchment, that while in some rolls the inner pages and the wood binding were reduced to ashes, of others the parchment binding remained unscorched. These particulars were all written out in Greek, Latin, and the Chaldeo-Syriac dialect, by a learned youth named Theodas, one of the scribes employed in the museum. One of these manuscripts is alleged to be preserved till now in a Greek convent, and the person who narrated the tradition to us had seen it himself. He said that many more will see it and learn where to look for important documents, when a certain prophecy will be fulfilled, adding, that most of these works could be found in Tartary and India. The monk showed us a copy of the original, which, of course, we could read but poorly, as we claim but little erudition in the matter of dead languages. But we were so particularly struck by the vivid and picturesque translation of the Holy Father, that we perfectly remember some curious paragraphs, which run, as far as we can recall them, as follows. When the Queen of the Sun, Cleopatra, was brought back to the half-ruined city, after the fire had devoured the glory of the world, and when she saw the mountains of books, or rolls, covering the half-consumed steps of the Estrada, and when she perceived that the inside was gone and the indestructible covers alone remained, she wept in rage and fury, and cursed the meanness of her fathers who had grudged the cost of the real Pergamus for the inside as well as the outside of the precious rolls. Further, our author, Theodas, indulges in a joke at the expense of the queen for believing that nearly all the library was burned, when, in fact, hundreds and thousands of the choicest books were safely stored in his own house and those of other scribes, librarians, students, and philosophers. H.P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 15 The loved ones of the precious St. Germain's family, I have come tonight to bring you an explanation of some of the things the angelic hosts do to help mankind to protect that which is constructive, and to bring the illumination that must one day take its dominion through all life in this world. I wish you to understand that from our great temples of the sacred fire, there is streaming forth, not only the atmosphere of earth but coming right into the structure of earth itself, great cosmic light rays and great cosmic streams of the sacred fire, concentrated at certain places in the structure of the earth where those mighty outpourings continue to flow, to expand, to purify and to harmonize. The mass of mankind does not understand this. You have no idea how many of those mighty cosmic activities are anchored into the physical structure of the earth itself to enable mankind to continue to live and make conscious effort to attain the ascension. Mankind knows very little about the great cosmic divine plan and law of the life that creates a planet, brings forth the powers of nature upon it, and provides conditions here in which mankind may embody. 
now the ascended masters and cosmic beings, from their great temples of the sacred fire which are their homes and focus of activity throughout creation, in those temples of the sacred fire there is concentrated the cosmic power of the special activities which they are directing to the earth, or to this system of worlds. My service from the Jade Temple is to intensify the activity of purification, because the Jade Temple and the Jade that is placed in the structure of earth, as it grows through the powers of nature, is an eternally pure substance. Jade will not take on the magnetic radiation of impurity from mankind's feeling. Therefore, we can call forth through that, a continual flow of our purifying power, the light rays and cosmic light substance that continually radiate into outer world conditions, our eternal purity. If it were not so, that these great streams of cosmic light substance and the sacred fire, if they were not placed within the structure of earth itself, if we were to suddenly withdraw that, everything would return to the unmanifest. This is the divine plan and action of life, the cosmic life that surrounds this system of worlds by which manifestation is drawn into existence, is sustained, and goes on expanding its activity while mankind takes embodiment here, to fulfill the divine plan of the ascension. Beloved Angel Deva of the Jade Temple From the Ascended Master's temples of the various activities of the jewels of the sacred fire and of the cosmic light, the condensation of that cosmic light substance, these are the mighty, sustaining activities of the cosmic light that is the great manifesting substance by which a world exists. So when we come from time to time and pour our radiation to you and intensify our outpouring through the substance we have created here and placed within the powers of nature, it is that a certain proportion of purity, eternal purity, flows continually here in this world in order to sustain it, and in order to have constructive activities in which mankind can function to learn the great laws of the universe, to draw forth the great power of life's creative activities, and to gain the experience here by which each individual becomes an ascended being. So, when you think of us, when you hear of the Angel Davis, remember always, we are the cosmic life's activity that is constantly creating that which is constructive and pouring it forth into the earth, the structure of the earth, and into people, to fulfill the great divine plan. Whenever you care to accept or call forth individually into yourselves or your affairs the purifying power that we are giving and that comes under our direction, you may have an individualized stream of each of these great activities anchored in and around you, so long as you accept it. Call for it, love it, give it recognition, and let us have a chance to expand it in, through, and around you. So, our gift is continually blessing life and raising it into something greater and more magnificent in its perfection from our octave, and its ever-increasing happiness to life in this world. There are great departments in the activities of nature over which we preside, and through which we are definitely constructing magnificent beauty and perfection for the future of this world. You can just as well have more of our perfection, and beauty and perfection, beauty and sacred fire love that belongs into the use of mankind, so long as the divine plan is being fulfilled, and so long as the desire in life is to do that which is constructive. The great cosmic law of life is so wonderful, beloved ones, because the moment any desire within an individual is constructive, the greater life surrounding the individual will always make every effort to fulfill every constructive desire, give all cooperation, and let it manifest the divine plan revealed, so it may lift life everywhere into greater perfection and happiness. Beloved Angel Deva of the Jade Temple